Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Thanks entirely to listeners like you who generously support the show on Patreon. Indoctrination has been going for over five years now, releasing a new episode every week, plus new bonus episodes for Patreon supporters twice a month. In those almost six years since we started back in 2018, a community of like-minded shows has grown around us. We are so grateful to see the numerous other podcasters doing really great work in the cult education and recovery space. Whenever we take notice of these shows, I like to reach out and collaborate, which as some of you know, has led to several crossover episodes with shows like The Influence Continuum with Steve Hassan, A Little Bit Culty with Sarah and Nippy, as well as one we'd like to highlight today, Mind Shift with Dr. Clint Haycock. If you have not already done so, please make sure to check out our last crossover episode with Dr. Haycock, who will be joining us again in just a few weeks to discuss topics around his expertise in Christian fundamentalism. Clint is a former pastor and Bible college teacher with a sharp analytical mind and deep theological knowledge, which he displays on MindShift. Here's Dr. Haycock now to describe the show in his own words. I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a mind check. So, for this week, I have a very special guest on. One of the things that happens when you meet people along the way is you find out what they have going on in their lives and what they had going on in their lives. And you just feel very happy for them that they've been able to come back to life, come back to having success and some modicum of happiness and health. Jeff Levin is one of those people. Jeff Levin is a professional musician and former Scientologist who grew up in San Jose, California. In 1962, at the age of 16, he started his musical life and embraced the burgeoning folk scene in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he played stand-up bass with Jerry Garcia in the bluegrass group The Black Mountain Boys. In 1964, he formed the rock band People, 
who were quickly signed to Capitol Records, where they released the hit song, I Love You. By 1968, Jeff was recruited into Scientology, where he was a devout follower until 2012. Listen to that time span from 1968 to 2012. After his involvement in Scientology led to the disillusion of his band, Jeff began composing music for film and TV, working with large technology companies like Apple and Microsoft. Today, Jeff is a multifaceted film composer who has scored over 50 full-length films with an impressive range of TV credits from Game of Thrones to Parks and Recreation and many more. His incredible story is the subject of the upcoming documentary, Brothers Broken, The Power of Music, The Curse of Scientology, which spotlights the acclaimed music careers of Jeff and his brother and how their potential success was compromised by joining Scientology, which also nearly destroyed their lives. You can find more info about the film at facebook.com slash Brothers Broken Movie. Here's Jeff now. I can't tell you how happy I am to be talking to Jeff Levin today. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. If you can take a few moments and introduce yourself, and then we're going to start talking about lots of things. Well, thank you, Rachel. And the first thing I have to say is Rachel was instrumental in helping me deprogram. I was in a uh, still active cult, Scientology, and I was in for a full 46 years before I went under the radar. And so a lot went down in 46 years. And I was, I had access to a lot of different parts of Scientology because I was a kind of a quasi celebrity within Scientology as a musician and performer and composer. Prior to Scientology, just before I got in, my band was had a hit record on Capitol Records called I Love You, and the band's name was People. And so one of the big story items for us is that we were having a hit record, and just as we were having it, we joined Scientology. And that basically broke the band up before we could really take advantage of the hit record. If you mentioned that I helped you in that way, you can do it. I'm not I'm not at liberty to do that. So, but now that it's open season, we can talk about that and I can confirm it. And it's very exciting to see where you are now and how much healing, how much work, how, how much you've been able to reconnect to your life. And it says so much about how cultic groups will tell you that they're going to provide you with everything, but really they take so much away. You provide them with a lot, but they don't provide you. And you can see it when you're suddenly stripped of all these opportunities and people, connections, et cetera, and that you have to leave in order to get them, in order, in order to get them back. I think it's a really important message for people to hear. One of the messages in the movie Brothers Broken is that do-overs are possible. And I really 
got that idea before I got the idea to do the movie. And when I realized I could reunite the band after 50 years and that we could do something again and that it was important for all of us to move, move ahead, move on and not be stuck on this. Everyone had a huge a loss from being so close. We're this close to really taking off as a band and we blew it. I encourage everyone to watch this upcoming documentary. It is an incredible thing, and the title is also very powerful, and I want you to be able to talk about it, which we will do, and I want to spend a lot of time talking about it today. And so then I know that you know you have a history before the group, et cetera, and I know with just the time that we have today, again, because I want to be able to devote so much of it to talking about the film we're going to be going through a lot of history in a really quick way. So I apologize if we feel like we're sort of skipping over some things and maybe we can talk again at at another time and fill in some of those blanks. But I'm curious about the group and that here you had this hit single. And then what happened? What happened is we had the hit single. Things are going really well. The record company, Capital Records, was really behind getting it played. Two things happened, and I don't think that that they're unconnected. One, the song in almost every market was number one. So we literally had a number one hit record. There's a however, though, or a but. It was a very odd song by those standards of that time period. So then Radio Tip Sheets, the Drake Tip Sheet, he owned a whole bunch of string of radio stations. So they would then give tips on what are the what are the new records coming out so that radio program directors could pick the new singles. You never knew what was going to be a hit. And so you relied on on these tip sheets. Drake put out a thing and he hated the song. So he would not recommend it. So when we started going, the other tip sheet jumped on it. And the Capitol was so adamant that they felt it could be a hit. They just went beyond, beyond what they would normally do to get the radio stations to play it. Only one, one A&R guy from Capitol stood on his head until they promised to play the record. That's great. You know, stood on its head in front of the radio station. Uh, yeah, awesome. That is awesome. Anyway, so the record was getting huge airplay. But we had joined Scientology. This is an important point. One of the first uh, indoctrinations of Scientology, which is so important for them to maintain members and gain members when they're new, is that you're you're indoctrinated into this um, particular policy regarding people who are antisocial personalities. Because they're going to hinder your progress as a spiritual individual in Scientology. And they have certain traits that Hubbard listed. And you basically had to study that and be able to know that you had to watch out for that. If you wanted to do a course in Scientology, you had to, to some degree, understand this concept that there were going to be people in your life 
who are going to react really negatively to the fact that you're trying to improve yourself. And so it's called an antisocial personality. And then the Scientology term was a suppressive person, and all these traits were given. So almost immediately, you learned how to look out for these people. It impacted me and my brother in particular very strongly. I was hurting cats, basically, with the band. There were five other members of the band. I was the oldest guy. At the time, I was 22, I think. Not experienced as a leader, really. I just was doing it by my intuitive personality that I think I was born to be someone who was more of a leader type. But I had no training and no psychological training on dealing with people. So I started to get an ulcer as I was in the band, just dealing with hurting these five rock and roll cats. And so one of them in particular, very talented guy, Larry Norman, was very really odd. He was odd. He wasn't your normal kind of person. And he was a key part of the band. He was one of the lead singers. We had two lead singers, Larry Norman and Gene Mason. They were both close friends. They had grown up together in San Jose. They were both Christian, and they were in a Christian group prior to working with us. So Larry was a diva. What can I say? Gene was very group-oriented. Larry was not so much. He was surreptitious in how he manipulated people. For me, I wasn't quite sure how to handle that. Scientology comes along and it puts its overlay on a person like that. And all of a sudden now he's a dangerous individual. He was a recipient of our ignorance and naivete. And we started applying this disconnection. It's called disconnection as well. The way you, you either handle somebody and the way to handle him was to try to get him into Scientology. That wasn't going to happen. He was He was a devout Christian. He didn't foist it on us at all. He didn't. He wasn't proselytizing or anything. We didn't, I didn't even know he was that devout. He was. And he gave it a shot, and it was completely against his belief system, I think. And he never voiced it because he wanted to stay in the band, I think. So what happened is a series of events occurred, including a horrible accident that Larry had. He injured his hand while he was on stage, and that just exacerbated his overall reactions to the fact that we were now turning into these zealots very quickly. And then the thing that pushed it over the edge is when Larry didn't really respond to Scientology, the practitioners that we were seeing, the ministers that we were seeing there, who were giving us advice, targeted him and said, we think he is, he does fall under this category of an antisocial personality. And we think that having him in the group is going to cause a great deal of problems for you. So I don't know of any other stories quite like this. We kicked him out of the group. It was, I know it was tremendously traumatic for him because it's like, why are you getting kicked out? We just spent three years building this group up successful and now you're getting kicked out because what? And so this was really was hard on him. He recovered, though, and 
turned into the founding father of Christian rock music. He was very talented. We didn't really get to use his talent the way we could have. If we would go back and say, well, if we didn't do this, what would have happened to people? Oh, I think we would have broken up eventually because of the personalities, except there's a good chance we would have had more than one hit record. Would Larry have gone on to be the, the godfather of Christian rock? Possibly so, because he loved that, and he modernized Christian music, which really needed it. We're talking 1965, I think, 60, no, 1970. And I know, I remember after the fact, in my VW bus, listening to the radio, and this song comes on, kind of a contemporary pop song, and I knew the voice, and it was Larry. He was getting airplay in L.A., and then he took off, and all these groups, that like a jar of plays and these famous kind of Christian creed and these Christian rock groups, if you talk to any of them, even the contemporary Christian artists of today, and you say Larry Norman, it's like everyone knows who he is. We had a lot of talent in the group, and I would have to say we made the wrong turn when we were looking for a spiritual answer by going to Scientology. Right. And this, yeah, I mean, this story is beautifully told. And I I think I come across this a lot with people who become zealots, as you're saying, or they they learn how they should be approaching people, how they should be viewing people. It's very off-putting for the others who suddenly feel ganged up upon, they feel diagnosed and misdiagnosed. Happens a lot in uh, psychotherapy kinds of cults where you learn about certain kinds of people and what's wrong with them, and then you're supposed to go tell them. And so many marriages break up because of these kinds of, you know, because of this hubris, I think. You get so wound up. You're so sure. And, you know, it's hard because that's its own high, and you're not seeing the damage that you're causing, but really that you're being caused to cause because it didn't originate from you, but you're the one who has to deal with the fallout from it. It's really an unfair, unfair situation to be putting people in time and time again. I'm sorry that you were put in that position. It's one thing if you're at least supposed to be grown up and adult and you make this decision. Well, that's your decision. It's a lot more destructive. And I feel that they're more responsible when they clearly see young people and prey on them. When I say young people, I'm talking about could be anything from 16 to 25, where you're a forming adult. And so you don't necessarily have any framework yet of how to choose your people. Right. Oh, it's very true. It's very true. And it sounds also like it was a stressful situation that you were in, like you're saying, herding cats. That's a very hard job. And sometimes you get scratched also. Um, It can feel thankless, but sometimes necessary. It's a hard thing to balance. I was looking for an answer. And then I had no idea at the time because I, I, I was going to be a psychology major at San Jose State. I was also doing music, though, and so I did a class. And at the time, there is a lot of very barbaric kind of stuff going on, I think, that was still being taught. 
or at least shown to students at the college level. And I think what changed my mind was watching a film in class, sitting in class at San Jose State, and they showed how they were able to, with stimulus response and pain reinforcement, they were able to drive a rat crazy. And I said, okay, this makes no sense to me. And we're talking about, when I say crazy, this rat would jump onto a grid and get some food, jump on, and then all of a sudden jump onto a grid and get electroshocked. You know, they, they cut it, so all of a sudden cut to the thing goes psychotic. And it was literally climbing the wall. It was so dramatic, I was like, okay. And so at that point, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. Doesn't seem right. But I was still searching for answers. And so I had thought I was going to get them at the time in that major. At that point, I started to get into the folk scene and the spiritual scene. And of course, getting turned on, pot and all that, and LSD. And all of a sudden, you're into the spiritual realm and, and reading all of these, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and all these spiritual things. And that led me to, okay, maybe there is another truth. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I also had very bad reactions to watching movies here or hearing about certain uh, studies that were done on, on animals and on people, on children. I'm not saying something against doing clinical work, but I know where I got my master's at, at USC, the clinical program was about, you know, at the time doing that kind of research and I couldn't do it. So I did the counseling psychology, not the clinical psychology, because I just wanted to work with people and sit in a room with them and not drive them crazy and help them so that other things in their life didn't do that to them. I mean, maybe it's because I just couldn't tolerate it. And uh, maybe that's a good thing. But uh, so tell me about getting involved in Scientology. And I know that you had a lot that you did there. And you're saying that you became aware of a lot of information behind the scenes, working with a lot of the players. And I know that, you know, you've talked about this and and uh, and then we'll lead into talking more about the film. But I would love to just get a flavor for your life in Scientology. I think I was a perfect candidate more than anybody because, in essence, I was assigned to be a parent watching out for my brother. And my parents were always busy. They both worked, both had an active social life, and they certainly had no information or knowledge about how to deal with some alien that all of a sudden is in their life. From my perspective, I never got any kind of interaction with my parents. And so I was looking for a family because I had no concept of what it was to be loved by your parents. There was no hugging. There was no contact with me other than, you know, direct communication when I could talk and they would reason with me or and there was no advice particularly either. So when I encountered something that was a group like that, and of course you come in and it's like, whoa, you feel like you're in a new family, love bombing you right from the start. So I jumped right in more than the other band members and more than my brother even. I was the leader of the band, the oldest person and I I had had contact with people who had been involved in Scientology in 1963. 
So they had basically put a suggestions, put some information there that I embraced at the time and given me a book, I think, written by a guy named Ray Kemp, who was an early Scientologist, when you could write books about Scientology and they would get released by Scientology. I embraced the concept of past lives and that we're immortal beings. And Hubbard had given a very specific term to what he called the soul. He didn't call it the soul, but what, what normally you would call a spiritual being or the soul. He gave it a term called uh, a phaeton, T-H-E-T-A-N, comes from the Greek letter theta, which is still being used for, for other things. I took that on in 1963. That was a new belief system for me. I didn't tell anybody about it other than discussing it with the people who had turned me on to it. And one of them was the well-known musician David Nelson, who good friend of Jerry Garcia's, who performed with Jerry in Jerry's Bluegrass Band, and then uh, was a founding member of New Writers of the Purple Sage. At the time, he was my mentor. I think I was 18, and he was much older, like 21. And I looked up to him, a really good musician, and he's the one who turned me on to Scientology. And the same night that they, I don't know why they thought this was going to work, but first they got me stoned on pot for the first time. And then they started indoctrinating. Okay, so we got drugs and indoctrination right away. But I, I went for it. So in 68, when I found out that there was actually a mission, Scientology mission in our area, I didn't have to think about it. Nobody else even knew what, what Scientology was. I did. And I was like, seriously? I didn't know it was here. Okay, I'm going down today. Anybody want to go with me? That was it. I went in. They give you, they, they have a whole introductory lecture that they give you. They have people who are skilled in giving you the lecture, skilled in, in being able to spot what people respond to while they're lecturing. And so I was like, okay, sign me up. That was it. Incredible. And I'm wondering also about David Nelson. How did he get involved? Did he get involved on his own or was he raised in it? There was a whole core group of people in the Bay Area. And there was a core group of Scientologists in the Bay Area that were very dynamic at the time, in the, in the early 60s. David and, and the different, you know, Jerry Garcia, all of the, these folk musicians were getting turned on well before everybody else. And they were also getting turned on to the spiritual directions. The Scientology capitalized on that, and there were some guys at Stanford that were big Scientologists doing remote viewing, like real legitimate experiments and stuff like that. So it was very active in Palo Alto, mostly Palo Alto, some in San Francisco, some in Berkeley. And the Bay Area was where a lot of the spiritual turn-on stuff was occurring. So it was a perfect place for Scientology. Very, very perfect. Was Jerry Garcia ever involved? No, he was not involved in anything. He doesn't seem like a joiner. <laughs> he was the guru himself. And you can see that every, if you look at all the other bands, 
Garcia's, they've all looked up to Garcia, including me. If you had his blessing, you were cool. If you didn't, oh man. <laughs> oh man. I was smart enough and expedient enough to see, okay, I'm not a very great guitar player and I'm not that experienced. And what could I do so I could work with these people or even be accepted? And at the time, I was teaching guitar at Benner Music, which is in San Jose, and not a big jump from guitar to bass. So I bought, for probably $150 at the time, I bought a full-on stand-up bass. And I just said, I, hey, I can play bass. I knew the songs, but I knew them on guitar. So I figured okay, when you're doing bass, instead of having to play all six strings, right? All I have to do is deal with the first, and that's pretty easy compared to playing guitar. So I became a go-to bass player, a sub. There were other players that were better than me. And so I was able to get in and occasionally play with Jerry and his band, Black Mountain Boys. And then I got with a really wonderful vocal instrumental group called the Pine Valley Boys. They had a lead singer who was one of the best tenor singers in California, probably. And his name was Herb Peterson. And I used to go see them. And then they lost their bass player. So then I had a real steady gig with them. And I got to be a, a much better bass player at that point. So that was my first professional music stuff was as a bass player. Wow. So... Okay, so going back, God, we could talk about so many different things. Uh, but going back to you saying in 1968, you just went to the center and that was it. You were you were sold on it. And I know that a lot of people will say, listen, I got sold on the ideas as they were given to me about what this group could be and what it could provide. And it started out that way and then quickly turned. And I could see, you know, that I got involved in something that was going to be taking over my life in ways that I hadn't necessarily known or given consent for. And I know that is definitely a part of your story too. So tell us just about what it was like for you. And I know that you were also instrumental in being instrumental. I mean, you did the music for Scientology. And so I, I would love to know how it began, but also when it started to turn. When I got into Scientology, it, it appealed to my, you could say, save the world instinct, my save the world attitude, which some people have, some people don't. I always understood for me, based on my abilities and lack of abilities, that I was going to do best if I could work within a group to allow me to do things I did that I wanted to do. I knew I couldn't do them by myself. So the group orientation was there. And then the idea, I always had a social conscience in terms of how can we make the world a better place? That coupled with the point that they do very cleverly is get you to be more narcissistic. That's my opinion. The one thing I really wanted was this power as a spiritual being, this immortality. And they also promise that you're going to have these unbelievable kinetic telepathic powers, ability to create things from nothing, you know, just with your mind, you could all of a sudden, maybe gold could appear. So all of these abilities you were going to gain, and that was all of a sudden the narcissistic part of my 
personality, which is not that strong, got strong. And that kept me in for a long, long time because I felt, and that's this the other thing I think with any religion like this or cult like this, really, they say they're the only path to achieving your spiritual enlightenment. So I really believe that 100%. It made complete sense to me. Hubbard used a quasi-scientific kind of approach. And so when I got in, in 68, I was solidly in. And then I kind of bounced around. And when I left the group in 69, after turning over the leadership, that's the other thing that Scientology did. I was clearly the leader. And it was hard for me because I did things that I didn't feel good about, like being harsh on the other band members or being cold to them when they were not doing what they were supposed to do, or having to come down on them if they didn't follow the rules. Like one of the band members, keyboard player, we had a, a definite rule, no drugs while performing. And one time, Albert, the keyboard player, dropped acid on a gig. And I came down on him hard. And that was not fun. And getting, you know, just, just the thing of getting everybody there on time for rehearsals. I mean, there's any number of a list of things that I do and, and keep focused. And at the same time, I really was the creative director of the band. I have a lot of the creative ideas that we did that made us a little bit unique in our performing were my ideas because. When I was young, I was very influenced and moved emotionally by entertainment. I had no outlet because my parents were not musical and they didn't even see that, I don't think, saw the value in giving me lessons or anything. So I was like, I call it a cultural wasteland where I lived in San Jose. And I was feeling all these emotions. And then finally, when I first discovered that I could actually play a guitar and I wanted to because I loved folk music in 61, 62. It was a huge folk tsunami. I mean, folk music was good, but it was like the pop music on radio. So I was into it. It had a social conscience. It had, it had all kinds of things. The vocals were good. I, I was brought up with Peter, Paul, and Mary and the Kingston Trio, who were really, really tight vocalists. And then I started getting into the blues artists and people like Pete Seeger, who were not great vocalists. They were great human beings and great song masters. Anyway, this social consciousness carried over into the Scientology thing. And then, oh, now I have this huge new outlet that maybe I could have a big impact on the world through the only real scientific, spiritual, organization, not just in the world. Very quickly, you got indoctrinated that Hubbard saw everything universally, and he had experiences with past lives that take you back quadrillions of years, not trillions of years. So he, uh, he knew the history of the universe. Well, I got that. You know, a lot of people were, a lot of people say, that is absolute BS. Well, not me. Because uh, I was the other thing, I was a big science fiction buff. So a lot of this stuff just made total sense. You know, I was a big reader, and uh, in high school I started reading, and so everything clicked for me. And then the next thing I know, we're now we were like celebrities in San Jose, and now I'm in a group where I'm not just 
part of the family. I'm kind of a really celebrity part of the family. So I was getting special treatment. And this was new for me to have this semi-family kind of environment. And people were listening to me and, and they were also trying to help me to tie that in with family. They don't do anything really to have, get you to understand just how important the impact of your family is as a child. Because everything is approached from family is not that important. It only has a tiny impact on you because what's really important is the trillion years of history that you have where you've been through the mill, killed a million times, tortured a million times, and we need to address that part of your issue not the fact that this one little tiny lifetime for like 10, 15, 20 years, that's not important really, other than we're going to make sure you either make sure that your family is on board with you doing Scientology or you're going to get rid of them. You're going to sever your tie to your family. And that's perfectly okay because they're just this tiny minuscule molecule in a bucket of water compared to your overall life. That was my understanding until. I got out of Scientology in 2012 and started to deprogram. I didn't realize, okay, one, that's, there's no proof that that's true. I do believe in reincarnation. Other than that, how that comes out, I don't know exactly. That's a big lie. Your family has a huge impact on you when you're growing up. Massive. And I didn't address any of that. So... This is the thing. You get into Scientology with the problems that are going to be addressed, and they're not addressed. They're just covered over. And so when people get out, you have the same problems you you had when you got in. That's my take on it. I absolutely agree with you, and I want to say something about that. I feel so bad for a lot of people who got involved in things in order to have it have a curative impact, because it doesn't. It is a distraction and it helps you detach, you know, like having a good relationship with your parents means not talking to them at all and not feeling attached, et cetera. And so then not only do you have this flood of issues that come right back, but then you have two things additionally or three things. One is that you have the impact of having been involved in a cultic group and how you were treated there or how you were deceived there to add to the list of issues. And then you have potential self-esteem issues that can make you not feel deserving of a good life or something because you feel bad about what you've done or you feel bad about how you acted because you were told to. So you have that in addition. And then you have the the new, I think, education about emotion, how to handle emotion, you almost have to go back to like hit a reset on the fact that emotions are real and that you don't have to turn a blind eye to them. You can actually jump in and address them, but you've sort of forgot, either forgotten how, or you've been encouraged to not. So you are given all these new stumbling blocks that people just don't know about. And it's really important that we're talking about it so people know ahead of time. This is about the education and prevention piece of of our talk, you know, so people can be forewarned. Well, as a parent, I raised my children both as a Scientologist. It wasn't until 
I got out that I realized, oh boy, what did I do? And my advice to new parents is the emotional health of their children is they have a huge impact on it. Children are aware they're learning and each child is going to have a different type of emotional reaction, different levels of emotion. I think what's common, though, is that they should be allowed to have emotion. And then how they learn to express themselves is going to be how well they can adjust as they grow up. We as parents, though, have a lot of tools now. I think that psychology and today compared to when I was growing up, it's like nine day. There's so many great resources that we that are there. Good therapists, good books, access to so many tutorials and YouTube things. And so I see the results on my children by indoctrinating them to a certain type of truth that ignores the emotional aspect of each child. And as a result, they both disconnected from me to some degree, made the choice to stay in in Scientology and stay with their mother, who's still an active Scientologist. So when I was deprogramming, it's been a slow process of going back and search and discovery, really. Like you say, my self-esteem was not high when I was a child. So here, moving forward in our sort of time machine of our conversation, leaving in 2012 and needing to leave your family behind, which one always hopes is going to be temporary because it should be, but that they're held from you is also another uh, warning that we have for people today. And to be very careful about having a family, starting a family within the confines of this group because of the heartache that it causes later on. And I'm so sorry that you still have to deal with it. My view is, as you deprogram, as I follow my own spiritual path and healing path and educational path, what comes through is everything's done, everything happens for a reason. Right now, being connected to my children or from 2000, I was connected to the kids until... Late 2017, 2018, early 18, and that's when they both severed their connection to me. Prior to that, I needed, I was under the radar, was not speaking out about Scientology. I was actually active in Scientology enough to make sure that my cover wasn't blown. I call myself a Scientologist. I was feeding the journalists information because I was actively there on the ground, specifically at events and specifically at Celebrity Center Los Angeles, where they deal with the celebrities and big money people who get to go there too, because they have a lot of money. So 18 is when I came out. The band talked about their reunion and doing a a new album. and, And that was it. And the fact that I was not supposed to reconnect with my brother who had been uh, labeled an antisocial personality in 1984, a suppressive person. I had to sever my connection with him in 84. I didn't see the trauma of that. I only saw the justifications that I had created in my mind about who he was and what kind of person he was and 
I didn't see my little brother. In fact, I didn't even understand my relationship with my little brother until probably the last two and a half years when I started realizing this whole concept of oldest sibling becoming the surrogate parent. My brother understood that, and he appreciated it, and I think he he he's very grateful that he had somebody watching out for him. He certainly acknowledged it, except I didn't understand it at all. And, that, and that's another dynamic in a family that is not addressed at all within in Scientology. So where I landed is, hey, this you know, I, I've gone through the emotional issues and the pain and the loss with my children. At this point, they are who they are. They're both adults. And my focus is on the people that I love and who value me and love me. Now, that may or may not ever happen with Colin and Savannah. I don't know that. They need to find out who I am because all they know is this guy who is a Scientologist, who was their dad, kind of an overbearing dad, a little bit, not horrible. Still, I had my opinions, and I would give them at least once. And then they knew a guy who, then the next thing was seeing, it was, I know, traumatic for both of them to see their stable Scientology dad fall into a deep clinical depression for three years and basically stay away from them because I didn't want them to see me. So they lost their dad for three years. So they have a lot of impact that they're going to have to deal with the beauty of the whole thing is the door is open for them. And if they like what they see now, we'll have a really wonderful relationship when they are ready to deal with that. And I'll, we'll, I'll find out who they are. They're not my kids anymore, really. You say, mine. No, they're the, their own people. And that's where I've come to. I want to know who they are. And then we'll interact and we'll see what kind of relationship we have. Just like whether you're in a cult or out of a cult, the whole family dynamic some parents and kids are super close for their whole lives, and some aren't. And that's the choice of the parent, but it's in the choice of the child. So for me, I see it as an open book. Hey, it'll be when it happens, it happens. Right now, I get to do my thing, tell my story, and create my music and my movies. And, and that's exciting to me because I'm back on track as someone who wants to make social statements and make the world a better place through my creativity, which is much better than doing it through a dogmatic organization. So much better. And having to see someone through a certain lens, a lens that was given to you that distorts your view. And it's the same thing potentially with your children, that they have a lens that who knows to this day how much they are still wearing it or not. Um, it's hard to know. But that is how people are raised in these groups, to have this pair of glasses that they are told to put on that are formed, the lenses are formed by the group, so that you see everything through that that kind of line of vision. And it is always distorted. It serves the purpose of the group. And you hope that they're able to take the glasses off, really see you, but also really see themselves. Because when they look in the mirror and they see themselves, they're still wearing the glasses. 
And I find a lot of the work that I tried to do is to help people take them off and to see what life looks like. And actually that it looks really quite beautiful. There's a lot of possibility out here in a way that there isn't there. But sometimes people do go through having a breakdown. And similar to what you talked about, and I think when we first met, there is something very important about kind of hitting this baseline, falling into this space where you're shedding your life and everything you knew. It's overwhelming. It's almost a way to hit reset, although it is very hard when you're going through it. Nothing compares to the emotional psychological pain of those three years. I mean, there's no physical pain that compares to it and certainly no other emotional issues that I've had that would compare to it. I didn't understand at the time, I do believe in a a higher power, whatever you want to call it, universal consciousness, God, whatever, that we are connected, we're all connected. And that at that point, that was my last ditch effort to disengage from the cognitive dissonance that was so strong. And so for those three years, I had I had no control. I was, something else was controlling and creating that. Of course, it's my emotion. That depression, though, and that lack of ability to deal with anything was a defense mechanism. It's kind of like the armadillo. When it curls up in a ball, it's, you, know, you don't communicate with it. You don't do anything. It just looks like a ball. And you can roll it around and everything, but it's you're not going to get anywhere with it until the danger is gone. And so it took me just, I'd say, two and a half, maybe longer of those three years to get to a point where I didn't care anymore about anything. And that's part of depression is that kind of intense apathy where you don't care what anybody thinks anymore. That was necessary for me in order to leave. And at that point, the fear was gone in a way. Of course, I was agoraphobic and afraid of everything, except I wasn't afraid of dying anymore. It was like, because I wanted to die. It was so horrible. Still, that was part of the process for me to find the right doorway to get the first information that I could accept that would break the cognitive dissonance. And that's what happened. And so I look back on that whole time experience and it's not painful. It was necessary. What it did give me is, a, I think, a sense of understanding of what other people who have emotional issues and, and mental health issues, what they go through. And before that, I was completely like an android. You know, no emotion. Most people are we can't necessarily help them because they're too far gone, so screw them. And that is, from my understanding, and from everything I've seen, every Scientologist have the same attitude. You know, they're unsalvageable, so forget them. You know, we're just making the able more able because we have to save this planet. Every other person, if they're too weak or given in or whatever, or have mental issues or physical issues, that make them not useful, then we could care less about them. Well, it's not about a a real, it's about survival of that organization. That's what it's about. And so they're termed the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics, and dynamics are the spectrum of life. 
So whatever is the best for the biggest spectrum of life, you know, starting with yourself, through your family, through your groups and your God and all that. If it's good for that big spectrum, then it's good. If it isn't, throw it away. And of course, Scientology is the only group that's going to improve that spectrum of life. Therefore, if it's good for Scientology, then you're doing the right thing. My view is you have no friends in Scientology because their most important goal and purpose is to get that immortal power and immortality. Anyone who would stand in your way or in any way hinder that, you have to drop them. So I don't care how good a friend they are, you might love them and they have been so beneficial to you. They're not beneficial anymore if they're going to get in the way of your immortality. Therefore, you trust no one in Scientology. You get thrown under the bus very easily, no matter. You could donate, and it's happened, people donating millions of dollars, people donating decades of their life. I'm talking 24-7. And then all of a sudden, bye-bye. You're not useful to us, or you're now, now that you see the light, the real light, you're out of here. So here, you got reconnected with the people in your group. And then how did the idea of a a documentary happen? What's been the process like? And what will people be able to to find out about by watching the documentary, which I need everyone to do um, when it comes out in near them? I basically, creatively, always wanted to be a storyteller. I didn't know it, but in high school even, I was so enamored with films and the short-form story, which a film would do. And then starting to read in those days, you know, I had to read all the banned books, all the books that are banned now. We had to read them. Of course, these are great writers telling great stories about unusual people in unusual situations. So it would take me, my imagination out. And then I never thought about it, but even our group, the rock group, we were the, I think one of the first rock groups to do a small rock opera, which was a very juvenile story, but it was still a story. And we did that prior to Tommy when rock operas really became the thing. So surprisingly enough, I got into Scientology and met this storyteller in 1969. And that brought me to wanting to work with him because I saw him on stage tell an original story that he had written. And I was like taken. He's a great actor. He eventually became a very well-known character actor, Jeffrey Lewis, father of Juliette Lewis. And he worked with Clint Eastwood. He's done a lot of, of his films and wonderful actor, I think, underrated not underrated, though, as a live storyteller. We started a group in 1970 or six, late 69, and that group continued till he died. As a result, I was like enmeshed in storytelling. And it's also why I got into uh, being a film composer, because I could be involved in that story to some degree. Now, I, I was the music person who helped bring the emotion out of the story. I loved the process. So, and then I had dreams. I started writing script ideas. There was no way they were going to get done because 
at the time I had kids, I was working my ass off pretty much from dawn till dusk just to make the money to pay for the family and to donate the thousands of dollars every month pretty much that I had to donate to Scientology. So anything speculative like, oh, you want to write a script? Forget it. You're not, you know, good. You're not a script writer, really. So on. And you're not, you don't have, I didn't have the money to get it going myself. Well, I got out of Scientology and then my dreams that I've had started to come back. One of them was, this is a story that I know pretty well. I know the two principal brothers pretty well. And so it's a story that needs to be told. Why does it need to be told? My mission statement, which is in my press release, is I know I was responsible with my music and how much it impacted the media for Scientology, that I helped to keep people in Scientology, and I helped get people in Scientology, in the hundreds or possibly thousands. So how do you think it feels? You get out and you go, okay, I was using my talent to effectively lie to people, put out propaganda. Now, I've done great music for a lot of, of corporations and stuff. I mean, big ones like Apple, Microsoft, Toyota. Okay, they're good products or they're okay products. I, I, I don't think I ever did a product that I really didn't believe in because I don't think I ever did any oil company products, you know, music for oil companies or anything. But anyway, I was really effective. So my mission statement is, okay, well, at least I could put my story out and hopefully it will resonate or help people to deprogram or to heal a little bit, seeing what I went through, or it'll stop, it'll expose this group so that new people won't get in. So they'll understand and it's more universal. This is not the only group. We see this politically. We see political cults. We certainly see cults within the various religions where they're extreme. The religions themselves have their basic what they believe. And that's fine. It's when you start to organize it where you can only follow it through an organized particular group. And then, then what happens is usually within that organization, an individual comes arises, and then you get this control of the members. Well, whether it's Scientology or Nexum or whatever it is, these groups are more prevalent than they've ever been. So I think hopefully the story will resonate with that in, in any interviews I do, like what we're doing. I can talk about that. We need to be informed and we need to challenge our own belief systems. There is a truth. I'm not, not a nihilist. There is truth, I think. And we need to find what it is for us. Right. You know, I, I work with a lot of people who were some of the main recruiters in their cultic groups. And they are left with so much guilt because they were just really good at what they did. They were They were at first convincing because they were convinced. And then they had to continue being convincing for their own survival. And then their conscience caught up with them. Uh, so a lot of people are left really wondering how much they kept the machine well-oiled. But I think now with you being able to make a, just this full decision to say, I want 
to have this in my life. And I want to educate people and I want to get the word out. I want to try to undo what I've done, but I want to try to prevent it from happening to anyone else is a huge statement. And you've put so much work into it. So kudos to you for all that you've done. It's It, it, it can be an exhausting process to do what you did to undertake this whole uh, documentary. Oh my goodness. But considering that I knew the process, unfortunately, I didn't have the hubris to think, okay, I, I've worked on the amount of productions I've worked on, probably in terms of just long form film, long form films, it's probably 100, 100 over, over 100 films more and that doesn't include all the short form videos and commercials and corporate videos and media things and things I've done which that number is more in the hundreds of possibly thousand making a movie and and being an, uh, a cat wrangler within a movie is a completely different thing not to mention I'm not I'm not a scriptwriter there's a whole technology, as you know, of script writing. And so I was relying on friends to help me craft this documentary. Because the thing about when you do a documentary, you don't know how it's going to turn out till it's actually in the theaters. So just prior to that, things might change like a day or, or a week before you're, you're ready to release it. And all of a sudden, something happens that needs to be in the film or there's a technical issue or somebody says, no, you can't have that in there. It's an interesting thing where with a story like that, you're actually, when you start making the film, you're now impacting the story. The film is changing the people you're interviewing or who are the principal people. And there's no doubt between my brother and I. And this is one reason why I did the film was I felt like it was a journey. I felt I could be closer to my brother, that this would ultimately bring me closer to him, which I feel it's done. It, it was not easy. Let me tell you, there were times when the film was a point of contention. Now it's, it, we really got a film that we both at least feel good about. We feel it's presenting each of us in an honest way. And He's really behind the same thing I am in terms of, hey, let's let's tell the story and hopefully this will help other people. This will, in one way or another, prevent more people from being sucked in and and then have their own epiphanies regarding their family. It could be a family, it could be an organization, whatever it is that they they see something within the framework of and the two brothers is as we know. Biblically, a pretty strong like story icon. Yes, it is. Oh, yes, that yeah, that that's been around for a long time. Uh, so yes, and has played out in a lot of things. So yes, I encourage people to see Brothers Broken when it comes out, and I hope a lot of people see it. I hope your kids see it. I hope people who are on the fence about Scientology, people also who are on a path in their life. It is a cautionary tale about getting derailed and what it takes to come back. And I'm so glad that you came back. Thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me.
One more thing before you go. It is so powerful to talk to Jeff. I so appreciate his openness about how he got involved and how enamored he was right away with the messages of Scientology, with the promises, with the powers that he would be able to have. And I wonder also about how many thousands of people are also promised things like Jeff was promised, whether it is in a cultic group, whether it is in a relationship with someone who says, you'll be happier with me than with anyone else, and you'll be more loved by me than with anyone else, and with organizations that are kind of self-help cults, where you're going to get over all of your negative emotions. You'll get over all of your fears if you're with us. There's so much waiting. There's so much promising. There's so many moments that people say that they felt that a carrot was dangled in front of them constantly. And it was like the finish line with tape at a finish line of a race. And just as you're about to reach it and reach that goal, because they tell you after this workshop, you'll reach this goal, or after you take this class, or after you bring in this amount of money, or this amount of new members, or after you do things just perfectly for me as a, you know, controlling partner, you will receive the gifts of being here or being with me. But just as you're finishing or getting close to the finish line, people run up faster than you and move the finish line a mile ahead of you. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And then if you say anything, like, hey, how come that keeps happening? And the thing that you said I was going to be able to achieve by this point, I haven't. And the thing I was going to somehow know by this point, I don't yet. And the thing I was going to be able to feel or have a break from feeling by this point is still not possible, is still not available to me, is still not part of my reality. Just by asking then, you're mistreated. How dare you seem so entitled that you can ask? Why are you being so impatient about this? Why does that even matter to you anymore? Aren't you getting something out of being here? Don't you realize the true mission of you being here or the true reason that I want to be with you? It is so mind-bending. It's so gaslighting. And people just feel worn down by it. And Jeff is this perfect example of someone who was on the cusp of something really, really big and in fact was already starting to attain it but then was promised even bigger things, really big things, supernatural things by Scientology, only to have those not happen at all. And all the things that really were happening, the tangible things, were all put on hold or left on the vine to die. And there's no responsibility taken by the cult, no responsibility taken by a controlling partner who says, you know what, you're right. You really were on your way to something big, and I got in your way. You'll never hear that. 
And instead, you'll hear, why do you think that's important anymore? Why are you being so selfish that you just care about your own success, et cetera, et cetera? You'll be talked out of caring about the things that actually were going to propel your life forward or were already doing so. So a lot of people, while they're promised a lot of big things within cults and within those kinds of relationships, actually find that what they're really doing is they are sitting and waiting. And they're waiting to deserve good things. And they have to work hard for them. And they have to show their allegiance. They have to make sacrifices for the leader. They have to show their integrity. And if the things that they were promised still don't come true, it's because of them, not the leadership, because they weren't trying hard enough, something we talk about a lot on this podcast. And so I encourage everyone who has promised things at the beginning of an experience to write down what those things are that they were promised and check in every once in a while, check in with themselves to see if those things have come to fruition or if they're any closer to getting them and to write down what the response is if they ask, where are these things? How come I haven't gotten them yet? How come I haven't achieved these things yet? And find out if the attention gets put back on you as being the source of the problem that you haven't achieved these. Nine times out of 10, that's going to be the reason. And that you have to try harder. And that you have to sacrifice more, work more. Or you have to reorient your priorities suddenly to not care about those things. If any of those things happen, I want you to really know that the things that they promised you were never things they should have ever promised you. They had no business doing it. They weren't being honest at the time, and they're not being honest now about telling you about all the other things you need to do in order to achieve them. You won't get them there. And as Jeff personified, and most of the people I work with personify, you will only get them after you leave. In this world that they paint as so dismal, so boring, so without anything special, that's where your success lies. That's where your chance of happiness is. And I want you to be able to experience it and not just sit in the waiting room of your life indefinitely while someone else profits from keeping you in the hope of a promise. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.